Hey, thank you so much, gifted worship team. You guys are great. I love it. Every time I led by gifted musicians like that, I'm so grateful for it. And I actually am almost always aware of the parents who for years listened to terrible music. As the kids were taking lessons playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, never imagining that their kids would be up here leading us in worship like this. It's so good. I love family camp. I love temporary communities like this where we gather together to seek God together and deepen in our relationships with him and with each other. Every time I see these vehicles rolling in like I did today, I think, way to go, mom and dad. Way to take a big chunk of your time and your resources, your money and your efforts and pour it into something that's going to make a difference in the life of your family. I know how life is. I have been living it myself for quite a long time now and I've been living it alongside other people in really intentional, meaningful ways. And I know that the past year for many of you have had difficulty and challenges, and maybe you experience challenges on your way up here. We tend to as a family because the father of our family is impatient, and I'm at my worst when we're going on fun family trips very often, packing the car for me with bickering children and, and all sorts of selfishness on display, including my own, can be a disaster. It's many times we've pulled out of the driveway to go have a fun family time in silence with everyone angry at each other. And it, it, it's real, isn't it? It, it, it? You can't escape it. How many times have you, you walked into church just wanting to hit somebody in, in your own family? I have. So, so I, I recognize that there's a challenge to just being here. And, and I love the song we started off with. I've never heard that song before. But the line we were singing was, everything changes now. That's what it was. Uh, Everything is changing now, it says. I love that. We were created for a relationship with God, but we don't boot up that way until we have a restored relationship with Jesus, and he changes everything. That's what we've just been celebrating as Christians with believers around the world as we have for millennia, the birth of Christ that changed everything. And when he changed everything in human history... That transformation then takes, part, takes place in the life of individual believers, and he starts changing everything in our lives. And the thing I love about the Christian life is that transformation couldn't be more real, and it couldn't be more daily, and it couldn't be more translated into daily mundane life. It's so different than other world religions where you attain nirvana or visit a wise man on a mountaintop and attain a new level of enlightenment or that sort of thing. You accomplish certain religious practices and you've arrived. No, this is something we do, as Jesus said, by taking up our cross daily and following him. There's a dailiness to it. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. The hardest thing about the Christian life is it's so daily. And it can be hard to figure out how we're doing in our Christian lives, but it's important to look at our closest relationships and ask how are we doing there in showing the transforming work of the gospel in our lives and exhibiting Christ-like behavior in the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's really actually easy for me to come to a weekend like this in some context and look pretty good, but it's important to say how am I doing with the people who know me best. I love being part of the university at Biola where I get to teach students like Sarah Beth, who was just like right here, and Grady Lee, who did the amazing magic performance here, and, 
and uh, Tim Sherrod, Sarah Beth's husband. I have amazing students, and that's so cool. But it, it gets even more real in the local church. Brady was part of our local church, too. I remember I was preaching in our local church about a month after we got there in 99. And a woman in our church who I had gotten to know fairly well, she was one of those ladies who sort of complains about everything. But then she's the first one to show up to help. Hard to figure out, but she's one of those ladies who speaks right out. And she came up to me, and she said, oh, thanks for your sermon this morning, but man, you were long-winded. And I thought, wow, it's really important to be part of the local church because none of you would probably say that to me this weekend unless you actually knew me pretty well. So the local church is when it gets real. But you know when it gets most real is home. If you ain't winning at home, you ain't winning. And so this is my fam this is a picture of my family I get to spend time with at home. That's my incredible wife of 33 years. Donna is over here. Wave, Donna. That beautiful long, long arms of yours. Yes. So uh, we met in high school, and I was a complete idiot, but somehow we ended up dating anyway, even though I was an idiot. And she is the most incredible gift of God to me. She's this daily conduit of God's grace and kindness and wisdom and joy and gratitude and patience, and I'm deeply grateful for my dear Donna. And then our daughter Caroline on your right, daughter Paige, and then Sam and Isaac. I need to be getting it done with them. This, this, these are the people I live with every day. And if I'm somebody different up here than I am at home, there's a real problem with that. And so we've got to think about our Christian lives as individuals as blossoming in the context of our families. We tend to drop our guard with the people we know best. And not be as concerned about the kind of ministry we have with our wives, our children, our children, our husbands. The people that we're closest to in closest proximity on day to day are the ones who see us at our best and at our worst. Which is why I love being here. And I'm so thankful we get to be together. And so we're going to go to the Word. If you open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10. Kayla, thanks for that family photo. But Luke chapter 2 is where I want to look. Just a few verses in Luke chapter 2 because I, I want to introduce you to one of my heroes. One of my heroes. His name is Simeon, and for Simeon, everything was changing. In this moment of his life that is just incredible. It's this man named Simeon. It can be actually challenging to figure out, how am I doing spiritually? Do you ever have anybody ask you, hey, how you doing in your relationship with God? And it can be hard to answer that sometimes. We're not even sure how to figure out how we're doing. I remember, though, I came a few years across a list of seven ways we can diagnose our spiritual condition. It was really helpful by an incredible Helpful author to me through the years, A.W. Tozer was a pastor in Chicago for 30 years at one pretty small church, but wrote incredible stuff. I encourage you to read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. But Tozer, I, I came across years ago, seven ways to assess or diagnose your spiritual condition. It was so helpful to me. And, and Tozer talks about these seven things. And here's what they were. It really struck me. If you want to know how you're doing spiritually, ask yourself honestly, what are your goals? What are you working toward? What are you striving toward? 
And it, it may be a, a degree of some kind, an education or an accomplishment at work or making the starting lineup in your sports team or, or a, achieving some sort of accomplishment. But, but he says, what are your goals? What, what are your ultimate goals you want to accomplish even in those things? Is it the glory of God and the good of others? He said, what are your thoughts filled with? The glory of God and living out your Christian life in a way that blesses others or lots of likes on Instagram. Do you even get likes on Instagram? You do, don't you? Okay, good. Thank you. I'm so hip. Yes. So, so yeah, what, do you, what are you after? What do you think about all the time? You know, I watch people go to the Grand Canyon and they're immediately taking pictures to put on social media rather than taking in great thoughts of God by this amazing display of his creation. We can be so distracted with thoughts that actually aren't the best thoughts we can have. Then he asks, what do you do with your money? Number three, how do you spend your money? What are you investing your money in? Are they the things that will accomplish the ultimate goals of God's glory and the good of others? Great question. How do you spend your money? What do you do with your leisure time or your recreation? And when you think of playing, well, how do you invest that and, and see a wise way of playing, which we'll, you'll do this weekend, is this sort of thing. It's great. Then he asks, who are your friends? Who's the company you keep? I've officiated a lot of weddings in my life, and it's always amazing to see the wedding party of the bride and the groom. And so often it's this incredible display of godly people, and you find so much about someone when you look at who their friends are. Then Tozer says, this one really struck me. He says... What do you laugh at? What do you find funny? Do you laugh at the things God would laugh at? Or do you laugh at things that would require Jesus going to the cross? But then this one really struck me. He said, who are your heroes? Who are the people you really admire, you really look up to? I just have loved raising my kids through the junior high and high school years with romance starting to be a beautiful thing. It, wasn't it cool when, when you, your, your kids, when they were little, went from thinking the opposite sex was icky to coming home with stars in their eyes because she looked at me today, right? Just amazing. I just, I just love that part of it. But we, we try to shape the conversations about th these romantic interests that grow in your kids in the junior high and especially high school years. And so what we do is we, we don't just let them say, oh, he's hot. I'm not even sure exactly what that means. But we want our kids, and this may sound weird to you, but we want our kids to say, I really admire him because of a character trait just because he's cool or she's pretty or, or uh, funny or has nice eyes or whatever, or, but, but because he is a man of integrity. She, he's, he's really kind. She's really courageous. You know, these things that really matter. Who are your heroes? Who, do the, who are the people you look up to? My son, my, my son Sam and my son Isaac, it's amazing how, it, I, I think we're born boys and girls and grow into men and women. And one of the most obvious ways my boys were different than my girls is every time we were about to watch a family movie, I would say, what kind of movie do you want to watch? And the boys, to this day, say, I want to see a movie with fighting. That's what they always want to see. Is there fighting in it, Dad? 
is there fighting? I want to know fighting. And I said, why? why the, and then, especially my son Sam, he early on was really drawn to, to men who were big. That was sort of the most important thing to him. Look how big he is, Dad. And then he would translate it into, Dad, do you think if you got in a fight with that guy, you could win? I don't know if, yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah, your dad, your kid wants to know that. Dad, who would win? Yeah. Yeah, it's very important to them. And I, so I'd be sitting in an airport with my son, and a guy would walk by, and he'd say, Dad, could you take him? <laughs> sitting in an airport. And I'd say, come on, Sam, that doesn't matter. That, that's not something that's important in life. Ask important things. Where can I take him? I have, what is that? Yes, I could take him. <laughs> but, Dad, he's bigger than you. But I can tell he's slow. He's slow. And I would get going there, too. But, but it's amazing the things we admire, the things we look up to, the things that really matter in life. Who are your heroes? What do you think is really important about yourself and other people? We live in a culture where the heroes are now viewed as people who will take the last shot in a basketball game. Heroes are celebrities or influencers, whatever that is. You know, heroes are now people who, who figure out how to somehow make a lot of money by putting videos on YouTube. Heroes are people who, who look good on the surface but probably have hollow lives very often. You know, athletes and celebrities and, and people who accomplish things that are superficially significant but from God's perspective very often aren't at all. So I want to think about what you really value in a person. You know, you, you, you kids, you young people, I really want you to think about this. Who do you really look up to? I'm not saying it's not cool to see a guy like Steph Curry steward the gifts God's given him. But at the end of the day, being the best shooter ever adds up to nothing of eternal value. It's not being translated into the glory of God. And storing up treasures in heaven, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? That's what Jesus asked. Tom Brady, you know, has every record there is in, in the NFL for, for being a quarterback. And just a few years ago, after he, he won his fifth Super Bowl, he was in an interview and he said, even though I've accomplished any, more than anybody ever has as a football player in my position, in the history of the NFL, I keep saying to myself, is that all there is? And then his marriage crumbles this year and you can see even a sadness in him, even in the midst of those Hollywood good looks. Here's a guy who's got everything the world offers, but he just keeps saying, there's got to be more. And there is. And I realize, I believe the reason he's asking that question of himself is because there is more. And deep down, he knows it. And he's not finding true life in football records and supermodels as a wife. And, and so, so I, I want to, to think about supermodels, plural. He only married one. So uh, just let me correct that. He's not a polygamist. All right. So, um, so I, I, want, I want to look at a real hero from God's perspective. Here we go. You ready? Luke chapter 2. Listen to my man, Simeon. Who, who is, li listen, as I read this, okay, listen very carefully for, for character traits, things to admire about this man. You ready? 
Here's what it says. Luke 2, beginning at verse... Oh, this Bible doesn't have verses. Goodness gracious. It's a reader's Bible. I took... Uh, for, we'll have to work... <laughs> You know, the original didn't have verses. Uh, it, the original manuscripts didn't have chapters or verses. So where is, where is the verse in Luke 2 that begins with, now there was a man in Jerusalem. What verse is that? Four, Luke 2, 45. Luke 2, what? Luke 2, 25. What an interesting problem. These readers' Bibles are supposed to free you from being chained to the, but it's hard to preach out of them, right? So, all right. Okay. Luke 2, 25, I'm taking the authority of Jason Andrews. Yes, there you go. The little number wasn't in the original. This is a more accurate Bible, but utterly unhelpful when you're preaching. Here we go. Ready? There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And here, listen to what's true about him. And he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, the comforting of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit, into the temple. And when the parents of Jesus brought in the child Jesus to do for him in accordance with the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts for many hearts will be revealed. Okay, this guy's a hero. From God's perspective, he's got character traits that really matter. All right, what's true about him? You know what? I would love to hear from you. Anybody, just, just shout out something that you saw as especially important in who this guy is. He's filled with the Spirit, absolutely. We're not going anywhere until the Spirit shows up in power. Isn't it amazing that the Holy Spirit is the essential person in the Trinity who's got to come for anything of lasting value to happen? Jesus gives the Great Commission to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the authority I give you and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And you know what he says, but don't you move a muscle until the Spirit comes in power. Until he's here, nothing of lasting value is going to happen. That's right. Simeon's filled with the Spirit. Nothing more important about him than that. What else? What do you got? A righteous. Tell me your name. What is it? Lukey. We're reading from your gospel, Luke. Yeah, Lukey. Beautiful. Yeah. Luke was a doctor. He's the funniest author in the Bible, in my opinion. But, but yeah, he's, he's righteous. 
Not a word we use much in describing people we admire these days, but it should be. When, when your son comes home and he says, you know, I, I really want to date this young lady, one of the things you want to hear him say and what, what you kids want to value in other people is, you know what, why? Because she's righteous. What does that even mean? It means she's attentive to what God says. She reads in God's word what it means to be faithful and obedient to him, and she does it. There's a faithfulness to her. There's a trustworthiness to her. And that's true of him. Good job, Luke. You way to notice that. What else? What else struck you? Tell me your name. Keegan. What'd you see? Oh, isn't that cool? So righteous or just, either one could be the translation of that good Greek word, dikaiosune. Yes. Yeah, righteous and devout. Keegan, that's a really important. I don't want you to ever forget the word devout. Especially because, again, that's not something we tend to value in people. I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. <laughs> that are cliches that have truth in them, but I don't think they're ultimately helpful. And one of those things is Christianity's not a religion. It's a relationship. I don't hate you because I know some of you love that expression. Because there's truth in it that it's primarily a relationship, but guess what? It's a religion that we also practice to maintain that relationship, right? And that's what devout means. It means you attend to the things that bring you closer to God. You pay attention to the word of God and to prayer and to worship and to fellowship like we're experiencing in this very moment in giving and suffering to the glory of God and, and proclaiming and and serving and, and great commission living, all these things we do in the context of the local church, religiously, not when we feel like it, only, not, not when the spirit moves, but according to the scriptures, right? So we're not flaky. We don't wait to feel like going to church or reading our Bibles or praying. We, we have lives of discipline and obedience. That's what that word devout means. He's devoted to religious practice. So Christianity is a religion that maintains a relationship. It's not religiosity. It's not empty religion. But imagine if I said to Donna when she came to me and said, you know what, Eric? It's been three months since we went on a legit date. Imagine if I said to her, oh, Donna, it's about relationship. I'm not a checklist of things to do. Don't be so legalistic. You know, this is, this is something organic. This is relationship, not just dutiful obedience to date nights. You think she's going to take that? No, she's not going to have anything to do with it. That's just silly, right? Because if you want a good relationship, you pay attention to doing the things that maintain that relationship. Yes. Hugely important. Devout, devoted religious practice. Good. What else? What do you got? Oh, yes. He's full of faith. He's full of belief. And what I would add to that, too, is gratitude. That's, that's not a word describing him, but, man, did you see his reaction? Oh, it's gratitude. He basically says, I can die now. Thank you, Lord. You've provided this. Everything's changing now, like the song we started with. Yeah, he's a man of, of faith and faithfulness. Good. What else did you see? This isn't just Simeon's idea he concocted. No, the Spirit reveals this to him. Good. Anything else you want to point out that this guy shows us is important? 
willing to wait. What character trait do we call that? Patience. There you go, people. You're brilliant. You people are brilliant. We could do this all night, couldn't we? What's that? Patient. Yes, there you go. You said, tell me your name. Daniel. Good job, Daniel. Daniel in the Bible was very patient. He was a patient man living in a foreign territory. Good, Daniel. Live up to that name, my man. All right. So let, let's just walk through these things and, and make sure we catch them all. You know, he was living in really tough times. Under Roman captivity, this Jewish man, so many different ways you could respond to living under an oppressive regime like Rome. And there were lots of people responding in lots of ways. You had the, the Pharisees who were these conservative religious people who didn't like the Romans, but, but they were just sort of this uh, unhappy religious leadership in the context. You had the Sadducees who sort of bought into Roman leadership and made some agreements and were benefiting from the process of working out Roman captivity. And then you had the Essenes who went off and separated themselves in the wilderness that we found some scrolls. They, they wrote down, it's amazing, amazing if you understand the Essenes and Qumran. And you had the Zealots who would stab a Roman soldier in a dark alley when they had a chance as this violent resistance. All these different ways of dealing with it. But then you had what the Bible calls the, the Amharets, the people of the land, who were waiting patiently and faithfully for the Savior of the world to come. And Simeon had been waiting his whole life for this. And he's an example of the majority of the people here, the quiet of the land. And like we find out, he's a man. It says, I love that. You know how sometimes they introduce people? Now here is a woman who needs no introduction. He needed one. Here's this guy. You don't know him. He's a one-hit wonder in the Bible, actually. You know one-hit wonders? Songs come out by these bands, and they go right to the top of the, the top 40, and then you never hear from them again. Anybody have an example you can throw out at him? Millie for Millie. <laughs> Yes, we're the same age. Yes. Um, never going to give you up. Yeah, who is that? Oh, Rick Astley. Right, you get Rick rolled. You know the number one one-hit wonder of all time? Come on, Eileen. Oh, you know what I mean. Yeah? Great song. Dexy's Midnight Runners. Can you name another song? No. But in the Bible, you get these one-hit wonders. They show up, make a massive impact. And you never hear from him again. Simeon's one of those. you got to pay attention to these people. He needs an introduction, and he's righteous. He's righteous, like Luke said, yeah? He's morally upright. He has integrity of heart. He obeys God. Jesus, after all, said, if you love me, you'll obey me. He's devoted to religious practice and duties. Not as an empty external thing, but an inward expression of his obedience to God and his fear of the Lord in a healthy way. He's waiting, he's patient, and he's hopeful, bearing trials and calmly without complaint or whining, but he's steadfast. He's patient. And you know what else is an explicit but so obvious in this? When he sees Jesus in the arms of his parents, the Savior of the world, you know what he starts doing? Quoting the Bible. His faith was grounded in his knowledge of the word of God. There was a subjective understanding that came through the Spirit's work, but it was grounded in the objective word of God that people have had for yeah, hundreds of years in these prophecies of the coming Messiah. And so it was Spirit-enabled faith 
in the scriptures. He quotes five Old Testament passages when he sees Jesus here. And so he's a man of the scriptures. And he's filled with and led by the Spirit. That's absolutely essential as the Word and Spirit come together to make him this amazing man. And he's grateful. I'm astounded by his gratitude. I love this man's gratitude. I, I have to work at being grateful so often. I mean, we live in an entitlement culture. We're constantly told that we deserve the best. And you know, we're this consumer mentality. We can go through life with this Yelp mentality, even in our local churches. Where we're mentally grading and giving stars to the worship team and the preacher and if we like his style and all these things. And we have this Yelp review mentality in life instead of saying, you know what I deserve? I deserve hell. I get something every day in the mail from somebody, usually a credit card company, telling me I'm not getting what I deserve. And what they mean by that is a boat or, or some... Some, some big you know, Tesla or something that, that I deserve. And before I tear it up and throw it out, because the last thing we need is another credit card, right? I, I, I look at it and I say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not getting what I deserve, which is judgment, which is hell, because I'm a rebel of heart and I've been forgiven by Jesus. And, and so I, I can lack gratitude so often, but this guy was so grateful. Look, he had waited his whole life to see the Messiah, to see God's Savior of the world. His whole life, and this morning that this happens, God gets him up and he says, Simeon, today's the day. Today's the day you've been waiting for your entire life. Go to the temple, and you're going to see the Savior of the world. Doesn't fill in the details, he just knows today's the day, and he goes. And people are all over the place thronging people. This is during, during the sacrificial time, the, the festival time, and so, so it's thronged with people. It's like the mall at Christmas. And Simeon has the spirit-enabled ability to see the Savior of the world in the arms of a poor couple who we find in the previous verses can't even afford the normal sacrifice and need to have the one they allow for poor people, a bird instead of a lamb. And so he's, and he sees the Savior of the world held in the arms of a poor couple, a baby. Even if this baby grows up to be the Savior of the world, he won't live to see it. He could have said, really? This is what I've been waiting my whole life for. And it's sort of a New York Jewish way. Right, me. Is this what I've been waiting for? Really, Lord? A baby? In the arms of a poor couple, this is what I've been waiting for, a baby. I thought maybe a, a, a military leader would vanquish the Romans, one who would come in and bring, bring the kind of power and political importance and ability to rule and reign and crush our enemies now, but I'm not even going to live to see him grow up. But no, he doesn't have that kind of entitlement attitude. He takes the baby in his arms and he starts quoting scripture and he basically says, I can die now. I've been waiting my whole life for this, but now that I've seen the Savior of the world, my life is fulfilled. The one I've been waiting for all these years has arrived. He's incredibly grateful. I love this man. He's a hero. These are the kinds of heroes we need to have. Oh, it's cool to accomplish things in sports or music or some celebrity, but you know what, guys? We don't need one more celebrity as Christians. We need heroes. We need to seek to be heroic in the way God thinks, heroic in our homes, 
which isn't grand displays or dramatic things, but daily faithfulness. You know, you ask people, why do you look up to your dad as a man of God? Because I saw him get up and read his Bible, right? Because I knew he was a man of prayer, and I, I would hear him praying for me. Because it, it wasn't up for discussion whether we were going to church every week. You know, there was a faithfulness, an integrity. I saw him tell the truth when it, it would have been easier on him to lie about something. I, I saw him put others before us. I, I saw my mom serve us so faithfully. You know, these things that don't make the headlines, but they matter to God. We have a cat. I don't really like her very much. She's kind of mean. But she's gray. And my kids, when we got her as a kitten, decided to name her after one of the heroes in the Tonnis family. We named her Lady Jane Gray. Anybody know who Lady Jane Gray is? Can we see that photograph of Lady Jane? That's Lady Jane Gray. And I want to I introduce you to another one of my heroes. We have a photograph I'll show you in a moment, not quite yet, of another event in her life. This is a photo. So who's a teenager in here? All the teenagers, raise your hand. Guys, in this photograph, she's 17 years old. Well, it's not a photograph. It's a, it's a portrait of her because she lived in the 1500s. She was queen for nine days. Queen of England for, for, as a 17-year-old. By the time she was seven, she had already read the whole New Testament and knew Latin and Greek. She was brilliant. And she loved Jesus. And she loved that Jesus had died for her and that her faith in him alone was the way she had a restored relationship with God. And she was a young lady of deep conviction. She's a hero. You know what happened to her? She became queen of England. I could, can't, don't have time to get into the historical political aspects of this. But she became queen of England as a 17-year-old girl. And she was brilliant. And she was committed to what was called the Reformation ideas that were coming in and restoring a right idea of salvation by faith alone in Jesus instead of paying money and earning your way to heaven by giving money to the church and, and doing things, but just trusting Jesus. And she was so committed to that biblical understanding that she wouldn't waver from it. Well, what ended up happening was her Aunt Mary, nicknamed Bloody Mary, who didn't believe in the salvation by faith gospel that, that Lady Jane believed in, came into prominence and was awarded king after Lady Jane had only been queen, uh, queen for, for nine days. And they both couldn't coexist because the people loved this 17-year-old girl as their queen. And, and she, she didn't want to be queen, but she was willing to be queen because she wanted to influence her nation to understand the true gospel of Jesus and that we're saved by faith alone. And, and, and her Aunt Mary knew they couldn't coexist in, in the minds of the people as two potential queens. So she said, either you reject your Christian faith as you understand it, or you'll be executed. And, and her Aunt Mary didn't want to kill her, so she sent these theologians to the Tower of London where she was in prison. And they said, recant your faith, reject your faith. And she said, no. And she debated with her brilliance, these theologians who try to get her to reject what she had come to believe. 
And she wouldn't do it. And she went toe-to-toe with these theologians and won all the debates she had with them. They have transcripts of them you can read now. And she wouldn't wouldn't do it. And so this next photograph shows how her life ended. This is Lady Jane Grey in the Tower of London, a a painting that that came out of the, the description of her being beheaded in the Tower of London because she had so much conviction and courage in what she believed in that she was beheaded in the Tower of London. And in, in this moment, you, you can see her lady-in-waiting is, is wailing about this. No one wanted this to happen except for the leaders who were making it happen. And she went to her death because of what she believed. We have this painting in the living room of our house. Is that pretty gruesome? We have an execution in our living room. Because I want my kids, and I must tell you, especially my girls, to be, to be young ladies of conviction who are willing to live for what they believe, not mushy, sentimental kind of love that just affirms and supports no matter what the truth really is, but living lives based on what really is true according to God's word. And what will really make a difference, this young lady, 17 years old, lost her life because of what she believed. Let's not fall into historic heroism. Oh, isn't it amazing how God used to be and how heroes used to be? No, God wants us to be heroic now in ways that the world doesn't value and won't impress even some of your Christian friends. But for people who really know what matters from God's perspective, let's live heroic lives of daily faithfulness and devotion and righteousness and patience and spirit-enabled insight and biblically grounded understanding. So we don't have some mushy compassion that isn't grounded in love and ultimately then isn't compassion. Let, let's, let's see our heroes of the faith, young ladies like this. She's way cooler from God's perspective than Miley Cyrus could ever be. Let, let's shape our values and our commitments according to the scriptures and the enabling of the spirit so that we, like Simeon, this hero, start to become righteous and devout, patient and grateful and scripture grounded and, and longing for God. Do you know, she went to her death for what she believed, but she had an impact on the people of the United Kingdom, on the people of Britain, that ended up shaping how they thought about truth according to the gospel to the point where to this very day there was a transformation after her time where where the the nation committed to an understanding of the gospel that was salvation by faith alone. She, She didn't even think about being a hero, but she wanted to have an influence for good. Let's shape our values so that character traits that look like Jesus and make a difference for the glory of God is what we're about. Let's not be jellyfish floating around in a culture being tossed around wherever the current trend may be. Let's be more like dolphins who sometimes go completely against the tide flying right over the waves going in the opposite direction. That's a life that matters. Lord, help us to live lives that matter. Help us to realize that Jesus changed everything. Help us to care care most about character traits that look like Jesus, that are enabled by the Spirit according to the Scriptures. Lord, I thank you for each uh, man and woman and boy and girl in this room, and I pray you would do a powerful work in each of our lives. 
this weekend and beyond. Lord, for the dads, I, I pray that they would be loving and leading their families like Jesus in a self-sacrificial, spirit-enabled way. I, I pray for the moms that, that you would help them to be these incredible bringers of shalom to their homes. And, and Lord, I pray for these young people that they wouldn't wait around for years and years to seek relationship with you deeply and to make a difference through their lives. Lord, thank you for heroes of the faith like Simeon and Lady Jane Grey and people I know we can point to in our families and among our friends and in our churches who are living faithfully for you. Lord, help us to be simply faithful. We pray in Jesus' name.